0: Through their music Out of the Box With Joey Watson On FBI 94.5 When Mark Gerber Moved to Australia In 1971 He was a 10 year old With a budding appreciation For the arts His life to that point Split between Denmark And the Netherlands His new home city of Sydney Would be the launch pad For global careers As a musician DJ Actor Model And promoter All driven by An obsessive fascination With culture The new The new and the exciting but it was in 2005 when he took over a former record store three blocks from hyde park in the inner sydney suburb of darlinghurst that a lot that a long-term dream of an inclusive innovative creative space would come to life it would be called the oxford art factory and over the past 11 years under mark's management it has gone on to become one of the most respected cultural institutions in sydney mark a warm welcome to Out of the Box.
1: Thank you for having me, Joey. It's d- an honour to be here.
0: How did you go choosing your records? I can imagine someone whose life has been so immersed in music, choosing uh, uh, eight or, or seven of the best would have, would have been pretty challenging.
1: It was indeed. In fact, my family bore the brunt of most of it. Right. I don't deal very well with pressure. This was a b- big pressure on me. I mean, it's difficult enough to come up with the list that i have i mean it's constantly evolving music is a is a constant um you know avalanche of new things coming along and and uh you know new things coming from old artists as well so How do you you listen to music at home? Do you have a record collection? I have a record collection, but I also um, follow Uncut and Mojo, the music magazines that are published in England. I follow them religiously and go through all the new releases every month and go through every one of them religiously as well and pick out what I like and what I what I want to listen to, etc. And you mentioned your family. Do, you, do your
0: sons share your eclectic taste in music? Totally,
1: yeah. And that's, I, I, that, that's self-instilled. It's not something... I mean, look, maybe it came from from me and came from my passion with music. And, you know, my wife is equally passionate about music, and I think it goes down the line. My father was very passionate about music and my mother... But um, those boys, yeah, they're, they're into some obscure music that I've never heard of. You know, they keep introducing new music to me, which is fantastic. Yeah. I'm um, very proud of that, yeah.
0: And, and, and what should we start, start off with? What, what are you going to play for us first?
1: Well, look, I'm going to play something by the um, infamous Captain Beefheart and his magic band. It's a track called Tropical Hot Dog Night. It's from an album called Bat Chain Puller. Uh, Shiny Beast, sorry, uh, Bat Chain Puller. Um, It is probably, to my mind, I think it's one of his best. This was really an album that stood out to me. Um, When I first heard it, I couldn't believe that um, he'd kind of come back full circle because he did have a period there where he kind of wandered off and tried to please the record labels and people around him. And I think this one was actually one where he produced it himself. So enjoy.
2: Tropical hot dog day day. What do you do on Tropical Hot Dog Day Day? Yeah! Step out of a triangle into striped light. Turn around and step back into striped light.
0: was Captain Beefheart and his magical band with Tropical Hot Dog Night, the first record from my guest Mark Gerber, who has brought in a selection of his favourite ditties as he is my guest on Out of the Box today. Mark Gerber, you were born in the Netherlands. Tell me about the town where you spent most of your childhood.
1: The town where I spent most of my childhood in Holland was actually called Sveindrecht, which uh, literally translated means pigsty. I guess that probably goes back centuries. Um, it was near a main town, main city called Rotterdam. And the reason why we lived there is because my father was working for the local uh, multinational called Unilever. That's where he started his career after he finished
0: uni. Was he interested in the arts? Were your parents, was that part of your childhood? Totally, arts?
1: totally. My father was a, a, a fledgling uh, trumpet player and was a member of a jazz band in university when he was going to university at Delft and that's where they met. Uh, I think uh, my initiation into music came via my parents. They collected records. Um, I was... Exposed to a lot of uh, contemporary artists at the time, I guess you could, you know, obviously name the most popular ones would be, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, etc.
0: And did you did you speak uh, enough English to engage with that sort of music lyrically? I mean, a lot of rock and roll and soul was quite controversial when it first came out.
1: Not really. I mean, I kind of knew uh, English is like the second language in Holland and pretty much a lot of Europe, but especially in Holland, like everybody speaks English. So from an early age, you kind of taught to learn a second language. like my, my cousin who lives there in those five languages. But, you know, you, you back then in the 60s, uh, radio was your main port of call for hearing another language and you were glued to it. And it was also where you heard new music. So the BBC was a big reason for me to learn English. And um, I guess the next track that I chose by the all too familiar Beatles, she loves you, she loves you, yeah, 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 I mean, I think the whole world was singing along to this song and I certainly was with all my friends.
3: You know you should be glad
0: That was The Beatles and She Loves You. Mark Gerber, when you were six years old, you moved from the Netherlands to a small rural town in Denmark called Augustenborg. What was it like living there as a young child?
1: It was fantastic. It was idyllic. Um, it was a small town. Uh, the population was about a 1,000 people at that stage. Um, it was surrounded by rural um, farms. Uh, my backyard was a farm. Um, you only had to walk a few metres, you know, and be in the middle of a hayfield. Um, so it was very much, um, uh, I guess, a rural upbringing. But even though my father was transferred there by Unilever, he'd moved up the ladder, and now he was, you know, the boss at the local factory, which was seven kilometres away, with uh, in the town called Sunaball, which was a much larger town. It had, I think, I think twenty thousand people, something <laughs> like that, but. You know, so I certainly lived a very idyllic, um, I guess, upbringing there in terms of knowing everybody. Um, and that stuck with me. You know, I kind of know what it's like to live in a small town, like a country, you know. And this is where
0: you got your your first job working at a bakery. Tell me about
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> Look, strangely enough, I don't know, I've always had this thing in me, like um, my parents couldn't explain it either, but I just came up with the idea myself. And I wanted to go and work for the local baker. So I used to get up on Sunday mornings at 3am and I'd be delivering bread and, and making, you know, baking and making pastries and all kinds of stuff. And here's little Mark, like I think I must, must have been like nine years old or something, riding around on his bike with this basket of bread in front of me and delivering it to the local insane uh, Asylum, which was then uh, uh, they'd taken over the old castle in the because it was a beautiful old castle in in this town where we lived, and that was an insane asylum. And um, yeah, I used to deliver bread to them. And
0: tell me about the very significant uh, birthday present you received on your tenth birthday.
1: (laughs) So that was something that I looked forward to for a long time because my brother, my older brother, was three years older than me. So I, I I had to wait for another three years before I got something. But when he was turning 10, I think that he got his f- first guitar. And I was so jealous of that because um, music played a big part in our family. But on my 10th birthday, I asked for a cassette recorder. But instead of getting a cassette recorder, I got a little cassette player, a little Philips player. And, uh, yeah, for that... I mean, I was ecstatic. You know, I I was off. You know, I could do my own thing now, and the first thing I did was buy, run out and buy an album, and it was by a band called Jethro Tull, who at the time had a massive hit called by uh, it was called Bure. It's actually covered. Of a traditional, or I think it's another tune and it's composed by somebody else, but Ian Anderson's style on the flute was something completely revolutionary. It hadn't really been done. <laughs>
0: Throatal and Bure, chosen by Mark Gerber, my guest on Out of the Box today. Now, in Mark, in 1971, your father's job takes you to Sydney. But were he- you were you resentful? Were you were you angry at your parents for moving you to the other side of the world? Assuming you know, for a ten-year-old, that's a lot to go through.
1: No, 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 no. We, I, I was super excited to be moving. I mean, I was living in a small town of, you know, a thousand people, although it was ideal and it was fantastic and all that, you can imagine that if you're told you're going on to on to the other side of the world to live in the big city in the big smoke, for me that was something very exciting. It was the, the prospects of um, being exposed to... And being in contact with everything that I was never in contact with, uh, my, you know, being being exposed to art and culture in a close sense. I mean,
0: and and did you did you take that opportunity at the early age to start experiencing? Absolutely, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, look, um, at first it was a real culture shock, but then I, I had to leave the public school system. I, uh, that was definitely a culture shock. I came from a social democrat socialist state in Denmark where everything was taken care of. You know, we had smoking rooms for the senior forms in high school. (laughs) A a smoking room in the school. Yeah, in the (laughs) the 60s. I mean, you know, Denmark is very progressive and it already was then. I mean, I'm not saying that smoking was progressive, but it it certainly, there was a lot of freedom and, uh, you know, to come over here and and then be subjected to having to wear a uniform, uh, undergo or, you know, be... Uh, punished with uh, corporal punishment, all kinds of things like that, just completely freaked me out. And we heard of a progressive school, my parents heard of a progressive school that was being set up uh, to, to the north of where we were living in St Ives on the North Shore and it was in Duffy's Forest and Terry Hills and... They uh, sent me there. I, I wanted to go. I couldn't handle it. I, I was completely uh, lost within this kind of authoritarian kind of Anglo system. It was a real um, downer for me, so to speak. Before we get to your next track, I,
0: I, I want to ask, I mean, now obviously live music is an enormous part of your life. Uh, were you starting to be introduced to live music at this stage? Was, was yeah. there opportunity for that?
1: Yeah. My parents were very progressive in the way they brought us all up. You know, I, I was allowed to go out with friends, you know, and um, I think my earliest recollection is T-Rex at the Horden Pavilion. I was actually looking through the amount of shows that I saw there, but the list goes on, you know, from T-Rex to Roxy Music to Focus to um god it escapes me now but i saw so many bands at that place oh yeah lou reed 1975 wow. um but there's even more i think i might have seen zappa but i definitely saw people like the mahavishnu orchestra and the electric light orchestra and the the list just goes on
0: well the, the next track you've chosen is a is a frank zappa track it's uh uh, dog breath in the year of the plague what can you tell me tell me about this one why have you chosen this one in your selection
1: the reason why I chose it because Frank Zappa and the mothers of invention had a massive influence on me not only from a, a musical point of view but also just in, in a way that you view life and view the world um, they put everything on its turned everything on its head
0: Frank Zappa and Dog Breath in the Year of Plague. Mark Gerber, in 1977, you saw the Sex Pistols on Countdown on television, which you cite as a moment that changed everything. What did the Sex Pistols do for you?
1: Um, Look, they basically told me that I can do it too. It's a DIY kind of um uh, feeling that you get when you see that, um, you know, it's basically three chords or three or four chords. There wasn't a lot of difficulty involved in that. I mean, you compare that to what you just heard from Frank Zappa and it's like chalk and cheese, you know. But the, it wasn't just that, though. Um, for me, it's its a whole picture and, and seeing that video and seeing the way they were dressed uh, was... It was a revolution in itself you know i think um it can't be denied that vivian westwood's influence on the whole thing had a major role in uh, catapulting you know that movement especially via the sex pistols into the stratosphere and you know around the globe it affected so many people
0: and tell me about tell me about your first band
1: there was a yearning to kind of um, want to do something musically. I'd been tinkering with the guitar. I'd been visiting my friend that I already mentioned earlier and I'd been getting better, but, but certainly not up to his standard. And so, you know, I think seeing the Sex Pistols for the first time and seeing that, I think the penny dropped and I said, I've got to do something about this and I've got to form a band and the natural person to turn to was my younger brother And, you know, I said, well, you know, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'll play drums. And so the next thing uh, was that uh, I um, advertised at Anthem Records, which was an import record store where where everyone went. uh, If you were, uh, you know, serious about collecting music, and that was pretty much the only space where... but you can get some import records before anywhere else. And what,
0: what did the ad say? What did the ad say that you? I can't put look up?
1: honestly. It's that long ago, but it was something along the lines, you know, um, two piece looking for another member, looking for a bass player, um, you know, wanting to form a band. Must be into the Clash. Must be into. Uh, Joy Division or something or another, you know. But must also like the Beatles. I think uh, might have said something like that, whatever, just to throw that in. Sure. And I think that was one of the things that kind of drew John O'Brien, who ended up coming in, and he was the only person that answered the ad. But he, it is amazing, like he was the only person that answers the ad, and they turn out to be that that person. But he was the one. He and was the one, and he and- was like a, a multi instrumentalist who knew the Beatles catalog back to front. <laughs> who thought that Elvis Costello was the best thing since sliced cheese, and so did I at wow. the time because he he'd only just, you know, this, would be, this was actually before he'd released My Aim is True, which is the album. But um, he was into Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe from Stiff Records like I was, and so there was so much synergy going on there.
0: And now, so, so you've got John O'Brien in the band, your brother yep. and you. My You're younger a, brother, y- Michael, y- yeah.
1: You on vocals,
0: nine months of rehearsal before your first show pretty impressive feat was
1: it worth it it could have been even mean longer than that um yeah absolutely I mean uh, I, when I do something it's the same as me jumping into the fire and learning how to you know work in a bakery before I was even 10 it's kind of like you you delve in and you dive in and you put give it your all and I think we gave it our all and what and- happened at the first show Well, the first show, I don't know, it's it's strange. Some of these things, you forget how that happened. So, I don't know, there must have been some connection there how we ended up playing at Garibaldi's, which was later called Cafe Pacifico on Riley Street in Darlinghurst. And it was then an Italian-run, an Italian um, club of sorts, of society, and they were, inverted commas, the left wing of the Italians of Darlinghurst. And so we played our first gig there with Pell-Mell and we had an absolute um, rapturous audience. Uh, they loved what we did. We couldn't believe it. We got off stage and everyone was raving. But I remember, I do recall that people like Jeffrey Wagner was even there who then was playing with drums with Ed Cooper. I seem to recall that. And, and I seem to recall there was some other people that, from the music world there as well. Who just absolutely loved what we did, and so for us, I mean, it was amazing, you know, to be picked up so quickly and um, you know have all that hard work pay off. Wow!
0: And this this propelled you uh, eventually to to come under the management of Ken West of uh, Big Day Out fame.
1: Yeah, that was that was quite a bit later on, though. Like a bit before that, I think it's important to note that we were a DIY band. We uh, became friends with Clinton Walker, who suggested that we should go to Melbourne. And, and uh, the best label for us to sign to would be a Go. It was the coolest label to be on. So John and I um, t- got a train down there with a the little money that we had. And I believe that we met with Bruce Milne, who was running a gogo, And he was at that time working at Missing Link Records, which was a very famous record store. Um, And we signed the deal there and then for him to produce and uh, pay for a recording, which would later on occur at Richmond uh, Recorders uh, in, um, uh, yeah, I think in Richmond, obviously. Um, And uh, but... What we did then is get off him a list of venues that we wanted to play. We said, we want to play the the coolest venues, the best venues. Give us a list. And John and I just went and door-knocked everywhere and we managed to secure ourselves a tour of melbourne later on you know down the track but yes ken west came into the picture when we started making our name for ourselves and he was our manager for a period and tell me about some of the bills that you were playing on we seem to sort of become because of this trip that we did to melbourne and we had some impact down there i think we must have sort of had a bit of an impact and we ended up being called up to You know, support the birthday party in uh, in Sydney. That later on led to Ken West getting us Echo and the Bunnymen. We supported them up up in Brisbane at the now no longer Cloudlands. Um, We then also did the Fall Mm. in Melbourne. Um, I can
0: imagine a FBI radio listener of a certain vintage is uh, is licking their lips at at some of those pretty incredible um, bands to support. And I'm I'm interested that the the end of the band uh the kind of final moments when it broke up uh, was a story relating to uh, a jumper that belonged to none other than nick cave can you tell me about that
1: the story goes anyway look and it's true like um we we uh, hired a van and we had to drive to newcastle and we're doing a gig with the drop bears and ken was managing us and we had this hire van that had to be returned to the um, the rental company in Wollumalu, and John, the bass player, was uh, nominated to do this. I'm I'm sorry, John, but you know I'm telling the story here. But so um, I then uh, received a phone call from Ken not long after that, um, and uh, where he was most annoyed and very angry, and uh, was telling me that that was it you know he was no longer going to manage us and i was like what's going on i don't know what's going on so i spoke anyway i spoke to john later on about it and i said so what 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 happened and he said well you know i returned the van and um the guy that was at the uh, you know the service station um held up this red thing and to me it looked like a rag so i said it as an oily rag well that oily rag turned out to be uh an alpaca jumper that Nick Cave had given Ken West <laughs> <laughs> on on the tour that they just completed in New Zealand. Oh, so yeah. Dear.
0: And what are you what are you going to play for us next, Mark?
1: This album when it was released was really uh, I think it was completely. Earth-shattering, And when I first heard this album, I was completely blown away. To me, it sounded like somebody was running their finger on the uh, tape recorder and speeding it up and slowing it down. Everything sounded so weird and so new and so fresh. And there was so much depth to it and so much to, to be taken in. And for me, that just represents everything that's to what punk represents. So here's a song called Babies on Fire by Brian Eno. Look
3: at her laughing Like a heifer to the slaughter Baby's on fire And all the laughing boys are binging Waiting for photos Oh, the plot is so beautiful that's to the
0: And Eno there with babies on fire and a sound that half a century later still sounds like it's from somewhere in the future. Marco, but the, the end of your music career magically fruited a new career as an actor. Can you tell me about how that came about?
1: It came out came about quite accidentally, actually. I was working in a um a sandwich shop but it was a bit of a gourmet sandwich shop and, and reputedly we well we kind of knew it was the first of its kind in Sydney it was on Victoria Street in King's Cross where Una's is now and it was run by two women that I knew intimately and I knew them well you know they were good friends of mine and uh, they needed a kitchen hand and the guy that I was sharing an apartment with had gone to Melbourne and they needed someone desperately so I stepped in and but I kind of took over, and he hasn't forgiven me for that, uh, you know, for doing that too. <laughs> to this day, we're still friends, and he still reminds me about it. It's so funny, but yeah, um, and was, you know, so yeah, that kind of um, that shop was, an, you know, we had everyone from Byron Kennedy and George Miller to Michael Hutchins to, you know, the who's who of Sydney came into that shop, and so I'm serving. I'm this guy serving these people and uh, one day Grant Matthews who's the the leading photographer for Vogue at the time and there was another magazine called Follow Me and there was a um, he approached me and said do you want to model and I was like "Uh, well I'd never done it before but he asked me if I wanted to model and I said sure you know I'll give it a go and so I ended up doing this photo shoot for this magazine called Follow Me and that led to other things as well with people like Ian McMore who had a um a fashion label at the time and um they asked uh, somehow I got and, and roped into doing a fashion show at Wentworth Park um it was, it was a circus without ropes i think it was called or something um so yeah it kind of all this slowly happened but um because that place was so so much frequented by the you know the the vip of the art world and the mu- movie world and the fashion world it kind of made sense to me that i should maybe get an agent and so i ended up getting an agent and the next thing i know i'm shooting you know photo shoots and getting paid for it and getting paid quite a lot and so for someone who didn't really have much money all their life you know and all had to work really hard for it and my parents certainly didn't bring me up in a spoiled manner at all like you know we had to work for our pocket money at home and um, so this modeling career all of a sudden fell into my lap and uh, i just thought okay what the heck let's go for it you know and i met someone and she was already modeling around the world and um we ended up going to japan and then we based ourselves in new york and i ended up splitting up but uh, i continued my um modeling career in milan and paris and london etc and I guess the thing that I really liked about it was modeling takes you places that you've never been to before, or it takes you places where, you know, you want to go because you could actually choose where you wanted to go because there's a market there, you know. So you might sit around and have to do a lot of walking around and introducing yourself to various photographers, etc. But it was it was a lot of fun like it was a lot of fun but uh, it sort of opened up a new door for me personally as well where now I could now consider well I've done music so maybe acting is you know could be a thing for me and sure so and I what started, sort
0: of what sort of roles were you doing in the early days
1: well it was mainly just commercials you know so when you start doing commercials you it's it's almost like being on a film set you sort of get your your grounding for for what it's like to be on a movie Um And so I started doing quite a few commercials and uh, that kind of led to, um, you know, getting an inkling for it. And so when I came back, I kind of gave up travelling a bit uh, towards the late 80s. I got a bit sick of living out of a suitcase and, you know, it it just becomes tiring sometimes. And so I came back to Sydney and I ended up sort of doing mostly commercials. And um, that kind of led me into that um, mindset of maybe you know doing movies etc might be a thing and then that led into obviously getting sirens and and uh casting for that and getting the role
0: sirens the, the, the classic australian film with uh, with hugh grant and l mcpherson yeah, yeah. did so, you enjoy it was that oh, was
1: that an enjoyable experience i
0: mean you're, you're very serious about about music and you know your music career is obviously something that you 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 think back very fondly on is, is it a similar thing absolutely this period of your yeah life? i
1: don't re- i don't regret anything that i've done in my life and that that's something I, i'll never you know forget um,
0: And now the next song that you've elected to play is something completely different. It's um, Flower Duet from the 1883 opera Lakme. How did this piece of music come into your life?
1: Well, this piece of music had already, already been with me throughout my life, but I never knew who it was and who it was by. And I was in this... Kind of mindset of going to see as many art house movies and as many movies as possible. So quite often I would go to the movies by myself and see all kinds of um, foreign movies and, um, you know, a lot of art house movies, namely German, you know, uh, French, uh, etc., English. And this particular movie um, was The Last Exit to Brooklyn uh, by a German director and that was based on the novel which had prior to been banned around the world and I was keen to see it and it's a very harrowing story. Um, I highly recommend people to get a hold of it and, and, and see it. But in that movie used this piece of music and used it in such a... Um, I guess, uh, emotional way for myself, that it really struck a chord, and uh, I was absolutely moved to tears when I heard it, and especially in connection with this movie.
0: duet from the opera lakme a rare classical piece put onto the fbi radio airwaves by my out of the box guest today mark gerber the owner and operator of oxford art factory mark in 1998 you were asked to guest dj at the since closed q bar a set which would more or less set the trajectory for the rest of your life had you been interested in djing up to that point
1: uh no (laughs) once again i'm kind of like stumbling into things (laughs) and and discovering how much i like them when they actually fall upon me no i hadn't really considered it
0: What, what sort of venue was cuba in its day
1: Cuba then was a very different beast compared to everything else. It was run by rock and roll people. It was run by people like me, you know, who were into music and they were into art. So I had a very uh, close connection to it immediately. And it was actually run by friends of mine, you know, and they asked me to come in and do a celebrity DJ set, which then, you know, culminates in me pretty much running the place. And booking and uh, doing the marketing and creating all kinds of concepts within the Cuba exchange.
0: I, I'm amazed that, that you managed to negotiate your way onto full-time salaried Conditions with holiday leave, etc., etc. Like something unheard of for 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 any DJ that might be might be listening to FBI radio. Well, it was.
1: I mean, because it even kind of threw the people that were regular in-house DJs. They were kind of like (laughs) thrown and going, "Who's this new guy coming? Who's this guy coming in here and getting this this the getting looked after in this way?" But I mean, look, I was doing a lot of hours. I did a lot of hard work. Um, you know, this This was offered to me, but um, I certainly didn't uh, sit on my hands. I, I researched and taught myself to beat mix. I collected, uh, avidly collected music, and I, I bought a lot of music, as DJs do. I spent a lot of money on collections and buying them, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't like I was sitting on my hands and, and just waiting for it to happen. That kind of led to other things and other doors being opened within QBar for me. And, um, you know, it, it culminates with, uh, you know, the Lizard Lounge. It was called then needed to be reinvented. And um, I brought a whole posse of people together who I'd met for the first time through other people. It was about connecting the dots. I can do that pretty well. And then so I brought all these people together and we started Spectrum, etc., um, I brought my brother in, who painted the stripes. I don't know if you recall the stripes on the wall. Um, that was kind of like the first, I guess, um, sign of the Oxford Art Factory in the early days. Yeah, um, was
0: there? I mean, was, was there a moment in that period when you kind of realised that your,
1: your calling was? was to be a promoter or venue owner or well no i was always extremely nervous and like you know i wasn't that nervous for this interview joey but still you know getting that uh, collection of songs um, puts me on a spot you know and um i've i never really liked being on stage i never really liked being in front of the camera i did it because you know it it it's uh, got me around the world and, and, you know, it got me in front of people and there's no denying it was a lot of fun with having people, you know, congratulating you, et cetera, on something that you've done. But, you know, I, I guess the, the, the the DJing kind of led to um, a point where I didn't want to keep repeating playing other people's music. And when the opportunity came to to go behind the scenes, I discovered My true calling then within the music world that I preferred was to be in the background and produce. And and that means producing and conceptualising and delivering something like the Oxford Art Factory. Right, right.
0: So so the vision then for the Oxford Art Factory comes sometime in the early 2000s, 2004, 2005. What was the nature of the space that you were envisaging?
1: Well the 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 space kind of dictated what was going to happen but it all already had its beginnings with my brother Matthias and I wanting to reinvent the Phoenix bar and uh, the Spectrum you know with um including artists on the wall and that was going to change and we were going to have a rotating change of walls within Spectrum but that couldn't be realized because I left Spectrum and I left the Q bar And we then ended up looking at a space down where, you know, in the basement, which is almost directly. Beneath the Cuba, and that ended up becoming the home of the Oxford Art Factory. So when I walked into that space, I realised, well, how, lo and behold, I can now actually, you know, bring to life everything that my brother and I, my, myself, and bring all those elements together. You well, know?
0: What predated Oxford Art Factory? What did the space look like when you moved in? It was a
1: record store. It was a record store called Central Station. Right, and yeah. and
0: and tell me about the yeah. process of of turning a, a record store into I mean what what many FBI listeners, I'm, I'm sure, maybe have been at some stage talks Oxford Art Factory, if not regularly, perhaps on a weekly basis for some. It, what was the process in transforming a record store into what it looks like
1: now? A huge process. Um, it, look, it took it took a lot of negotiation with and a lot of work, uh, appeasing the, the other stakeholders in the building because it's a strata. So I had to appease a lot of people within that building and, and make them realise that um, I wasn't about to destroy the building building or take over or, you know, to do something terrible. Um, and it, it required a lot of uh, research into how these things operate. And so I connected with the city of Sydney because they're obviously a controlling body I connected with the local police, etc. All these people were all invited. But then prior to that, I'd already sort of known people via Spectrum within the music industry of Sydney and I invited all them as well. And then I had prior to um, leaving the Cuba I'd also been working for the big day out. I'd sort of gotten back with Ken West, you know, after all those years, and I ended up um, running the after parties for the big day out around the country. So via that, I'd made all these connections within the music industry, and I invited all those people down, of course, to see... The Oxford Art factory being built, but I can tell you what though, like it was a, you know, it was a baptism of fire. I was thrown in the, the in the deep end there because I, I was made project manager, which I'd never done before in my life. I was running a two million dollar build and um you know uh being at the head of it and controlling all these subcontractors who saw me coming <laughs> and uh, you know did manipulated me to some extent but i think i did a pretty damn good job in keeping it in within reason and uh delivering what we've delivered for sydney and australia and i think it's pretty uh speak for itself
0: and i and, i mean over the last 11 years there's hundreds of acts that we could talk about you've, you've, you've hosted breakthrough shows from the likes of you know matt corby courtney barnett gang of ewes in 2015 but the most impressive one to me is that you discovered king gizzard and the lizard wizard on on myspace
1: tell me about that yeah look i i <laughs> I, 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 I was an avid uh, surfer of myspace because myspace to me is still one of the most the, the best online medium for music because you you could hop around the world and I just discovered um, King Gizzard and asked the booker who was working for me then, Lauren again, to reach out to them and see whether they would play uh, whether we can get them up and play the gallery bar and they did and they came up and uh, we sort of struck up immediately uh, this respect I had for them because they were wild I mean back then they were like more like a, a freeform kind of entity than what they are now, I guess you could say. But uh, they were amazing even then. You could see the talent. So immediately after that, I turned around to them and said, "We, I want you to play the birthday," you know. And then they came in and they played the birthday in the gallery bar as well. And that was like the most insane crowd surfing experience, etc. It was mad. A sign um, of things to come. Yeah, and.
0: His final album, just months before his death, Roland S. Howard played the main room.
1: Can you tell me about that? No, it's quite... Yeah, that was quite an emotional time, um, obviously, uh, because I'd had a connection with Roland and, and the band, the birthday party previous, you know, many, many years ago, and I'd revered the man. Uh, tremendously. Uh, he was. I think he's a phenomenal artist and a phenomenal guitar player. And being a, a guitar player myself, obviously I completely idolised the way he his style and he had such a unique style and his stage presence was amazing too. And so to then be told by Gerard, a friend of mine at um, Frontier, that uh, he was coming and he was going to play the Oxford Art Factory, I nearly fell off my chair. Um... You know and uh, but uh I was absolutely uh, amazed at, at the man and um, you know he was close to death and um, he remembered me and he remembered the band and, and was an incredible gentleman and uh, everything you know you have those moments when you meet someone and sometimes they can actually it can be disappointing but um, we met again and it was amazing it was amazing to be to see his show and the way he held it together and uh, it was flawless. It was one of the most amazing gigs that I've ever seen at the Oxford Art Factory.
0: 11 years at the helm of Oxford Art Factory, but a, a lifetime spent at the f- new frontier of, of all things countercultural and artistic. What excites you now?
1: I think what excites me is, as you get older, um, what excites me is that um, drive to... Want to stay connected and and stay connected with the younger generations. What what excites me now is my two sons. I've got three. One's a lot younger though. He's six, but the the almost fourteen-year-old and the seventeen-year-old um, are driving this this desire of mine to. But well, not only the Oxidar factory, but um, obviously through work and and that that's that's a given. But my two sons and my family, etc., are driving me to experience new things all the time, and that, that's amazing, especially when you've got two kids that are so creative and, and kind of like a mirror of yourself in a way, but in the, they're totally unique in themselves as well, and I'm extremely proud of them and extremely uh, interested in, in learning what is coming, you know, and I think you never stop learning, and I think it's important for, for anyone in my age bracket or even younger um, to listen to what young people have got to say you know I think it's it's almost you're doing a dishonor to the future of the world if you turn your back on the kids of today.
0: What are you going to play us out with Mark?
1: Well on that note I'm going to play something by somebody who entered my world when she was only 17 and I was probably you know somewhere around six or five and it's Marian Faithful and uh, it's her new version of a song that she covered then and which was written to for her by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. It's a song called As Tears Go By. I chose this as the last track because I think it's um, it, it kind of correlates with what this whole interview is about, but it also connects her with her past. And um, I think it's a wonderful uh, new version that she's managed to pull off and not only that it um, has nick cave and warren ellis on the album i highly recommend everyone to go out and get it it's a phenomenal album and yeah enjoy
0: mark over thank you very much for being my guest on out of the box
1: thanks for having me
4: the day I sit and watch the children play smiling faces I can see but not for me years go by my riches can't back everything I sit and watch as tears go.